the word of God from Mark. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please remain standing as we commit this time in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, um, we recognize that our hearts are naturally stubborn towards your word. And so we would ask by your spirit that you would soften us, that you would illumine um, this ancient love letter that you've written to us, that we would know you, that we would love you. Um, help us to not be only hearers of the word, but doers. Lord, make these, um, these ancient words fall upon our hearts in new ways, that we would love you, and that our affections would be for you and for you alone. We need you, Lord. We need your spirit. Come, be glorified and magnified through the preaching of your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. So I'm Ronnie, and... Um, if you're new, we're, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. So let me, um, let me begin with a personal story. It's going to help us get right into our text this morning. So I grew up in the Catholic Church. I know there's a few of you like me grew up in the Catholic Church. Now, uh, the Garcias, we were not the best Catholics, uh, but I knew the basics. Uh, I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, I believed that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, I believe that he died on the cross to take away my sin. I believed those things. And then I went off to college and something happened. I truly surrendered my life to Christ. I became a Christian. And I would return like at the semester and tell parents, told my parents what Christ was doing in my heart. And it kind of rubbed them wrong. It rubbed them wrong. You know, they, they rebutted. Didn't we raise you in the church didn't we teach you these things already? And my answer was yes, you know, kind of, right? A version of it. But for the first time, it became real to me. And now what I was describing to them is that for the first time, I actually started to worship the Lord. The knowledge in my head materialized into worship. 
I surrendered and organized my life around Jesus. His power moved in me, and, and I was not my own. I knew, like I knew that I belonged to the Lord. Now, I begin this way because we're seeing Peter starting to experience the same thing. So if you'll remember chapter 8, where we were two weeks ago, Jesus asked that titanic question to Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ. And he had the right answer. The problem was not knowledge. It's that that knowledge had to be transformed into worship. And so in our passage today, we're going to see Peter kind of stumbling through this. This morning, we're studying uh, what is called the transfiguration of Christ. And the transfiguration of Christ is the beginning of the transformation of Peter. And it can be for you, too, if you will let this ancient story do business with you. So John Mark, the author of this gospel, he uses this story to highlight three things about Jesus that were instrumental in Peter coming to know Jesus. Remember the the gospel, Mark, this whole sermon series is about us having front row seats to getting to know the true Jesus, who he really is. And so in our study this morning, for you note takers, we're going to see three things as we work through the passage. We're going to see the greatness of Christ the exclusivity of Christ, and the destiny of Christ. So greatness, exclusivity, and destiny of Christ. And these three ideas were like redemptively devastating in Peter's heart. And Mark, the author, wants us to be moved just, as, just in the same way that Peter was. So the Lord desires that your knowledge would move from here to here. And so with that, let's begin with apprehending the greatness of Christ. Now, this story that Max just read for us in Mark 9, which you have in your scriptures and your bulletin, it is a really peculiar story. I mean, can we all just agree to that? Uh, It's actually one um, that you don't really hear often in Western churches, uh, right? We celebrate the incarnation at Christmas time. We celebrate the resurrection at Easter. uh, But in the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, the transfiguration is a really big deal. There's a whole holiday just for this too. So how come it's, so, it's such a big deal in those other traditions? Well, let's look at the details. For a good Jew, this entire scene in Mark 9 is actually an echo of the episode with Moses at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. That's what's going on here. So do y'all, do y'all remember that story? So in the book of Exodus, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he meets with God, and we're told that his face actually begins to glow. So he is reflecting the glory of God. Now when Moses was invited up, the glory of the Lord sort of filled the mountain, um, and and it filled it through what's depicted as a cloud of smoke, and there's lightning, and there's this thunderous, you know, it's kind of a thunderous cage, it's really intimidating, Uh, No one, we're told, was even permitted to touch the mountain or they would instantly die. And the animals too, like like some deer like wanders up dead, right? It's serious. So nothing can bear the presence of God without dying. Now our passage in Mark 9 is told as a New Testament parallel to that story in Exodus. And so where there's differences between these two stories, we need to pay attention so what do, what do we have? Look there in verse 2 and 3. 
It says, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, what's happening here is something categorically different than what we see in Exodus with Moses. See, with Moses, uh, he, he kind of hangs out with God, comes down, and he has like this glow to him, right? Jesus, on the other hand, is not glowing. He is radiating, right? Spurgeon, the, the old theologian, he says, Moses is kind of like the moon, right? The moon doesn't generate its own light. It just reflects the light of the sun, but Jesus is the sun. He doesn't reflect anything. He is the light. He is blindingly brilliant and radiant. And now to make the scene even nuttier, right? Even nuttier, Jesus radiantly appears with two guys who have been dead for hundreds of years, right? Like Moses and Elijah appear for a moment in their resurrected bodies, and according to four, they're just having this pleasant little chat with Jesus. Like, all of this is just too much. And so Peter starts, like, scrambling around kind of like a knucklehead. And of course he would, right? I mean, verse 6 says that they were all terrified. They were terrified. Now listen. Buckling at the radiance and the greatness of Jesus is the beginning of worship. Like, don't blow off the story because it's fantastical in its nature. Let, like, the impossibility of the details perplex you. Because if you're starting to believe it for the first time, it might be a little terrifying. And it should. Like, the thought that, like, when you die, you don't die. Like Elijah and, or Moses and resurrected bodies. Like, what does that mean? Or that Jesus himself in his presence is the ultimate source of light. What does this mean? Like, let that unnerve you. I know you've heard this story before. Let it unnerve you. Because if you'll let it, it'll actually start to work in you. The Jesus that you and I are encountering in this text is the real Jesus. His greatness is unparalleled, and there's no one like him. He, he's fully human, yes, but he is fully divine. And in order for you to, to move from nice, pleasant feelings about Jesus to this unrestrained passion and worship of him, you have to let him unnerve you. You can't keep nourishing a cultural, tame version of Jesus. I wonder if we're like this because many of, you know, we're kind of products of this stream of thought, uh, you know, these thinkers coming out of the 20th century, or really actually earlier in the 20th century. So many of the great thinkers in the 20th century, um, like I think 30s and 40s here, uh, they said Christianity was in trouble because no modern person would be able to accept a supernatural Jesus or his miracles. And so many of these thinkers began to sort of reframe the Christian faith in a way that takes out all the teeth, right? All the supernatural aspects uh, or elements of the, of the passages. And so there's actually, you know, tons of books and TV shows in the way of documentaries that are looking for what they call the Jesus of history, 
That's like, it feels like every, you know, Easter season, there's this documentary of who is the Jesus of history. And according to them, right, the Jesus of Christianity, uh, as he's presented in the Bible with supernatural miracles and radiating and so forth, uh, is simply, uh, they would say, that's just a creation of first century politics in order, uh, in order for those people to obtain power through religion, right? That's the narrative that they tell. And so what happened is that the thinkers in, this, in the early 20th century began to edit and interpret the Bible in order to accommodate modern sensibility because they wanted to make Jesus relevant. Listen to me, you guys. If you do that, if you can't accept these stories, it becomes a different religion. And that's not even the worst of it. These guys wanted to make Christianity relevant by taking out the supernatural, but what they ended up doing was the exact opposite. They made it irrelevant. Let me give you an example. So like in the 1930s and 40s in the United States, the sort of... Um, Academic, academic liberal movement, it began to grow in prominence. And so what we call theological liberalism was attractive, but principally to upper-class, white, Western European privileged communities. Let me tell you who it was not persuasive to, guys who look like me or my African-American brothers, right? So when the civil rights debates began to grow, white, privileged theologians remained largely silent. All the main voices came from African-American theologians who believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus was God incarnate, that sin was real, and that sin needed to be rooted out, and that the physical resurrection gave hope to people who suffer. And so men like Vernon Johns or Howard Thurman were writing and preaching on the theological implications of the real Jesus Christ. Now, you might not even know those names, but those were the men who influenced and were the primary influences of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So if, like, if you've ever read his essays, if you've ever heard his speeches, you know that Dr. King was motivated by a robust faith in Christ. And, and so the, 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 liberal, the liberal movement, they, these guys, they wanted to be sensible. They wanted to be sensible, but they had no prophetic edge to speak against the abuses in society. For them, the Bible had changed from infallible to just a compendium of ancient writings. Jesus was changed from God incarnate, born of a virgin, to a wise man who had God consciousness, that's, those, that's kind of language they use. Or a uh, physical resurrection of the dead was reduced to just a symbol of something that could happen. And being born again, whatever that means, whatever Jesus meant when he said you had to be born again, that was changed into just be a good person, however you define good, you see. But those African-American theologians who still believed in Christ as he is described in the Bible, they were equipped on that day to act in the world without any regard to their own lives or even their own reputations. Why? Why? Because they believed in a resurrected Jesus and a transfigured Jesus. And just like Peter, they began to experience his greatness. They experienced the greatness of Jesus. It stirred them. 
How about you? Does it stir you? Or are you being sidelined because Jesus is nice? Allow the miraculous details of this story to unsettle you. When you become unsettled by the stories of Jesus, then you are beginning to worship him. Yes, they are miraculous, but within the realm of the miraculous nature of the, of the text is where your hope lies. It's the hope that God will interrupt the natural order of things and supernaturally reverse the corruption of this world and that he will invite you into the very resurrection that we see in him. That you will be transfigured one day. That you will be transfigured one day. So moving from a generic belief about Jesus to worshiping Jesus begins by apprehending the greatness of Jesus. That's just the beginning. There's another step, and it's appreciating the exclusivity of Christ. This is our second point. So let's get back to the details of the text. So verse 4, we saw Moses and Elijah. They were with Jesus for a moment, but then they disappear. Now, Beyond their actual resurrected physical presence, these two figures, Elijah and Moses, represent something very profound in Jewish understanding. They represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. In other words, they represent the entire Old Testament religion. And then they disappear, and in a new cloud, just like in Mount Sinai, on a mountain cloud, a new law is pronounced. Not the Ten Commandments, but a new law. And it's given in verse 7. What is this law? This voice says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right? Not those other guys. Listen to him. That is, in Jesus, all the teaching of the law and the prophets find their purpose. Now, with the advent of Jesus Christ, there are no other options. So if you're a Jew, like you can't go back. Now, most of us here aren't Jewish. I mean, maybe there's a few that have a little background. Um, but because we're not, we don't actually feel the punch in this text, or certainly not in that verse 7, because it has really deeper implications. So if you will recall, while all of this was happening, Peter's like understandably losing his mind. And in verse 5, he suggests that they make three tents. Now, this is not like a Coleman camping tent that we're doing right in Estes Park, right? That's not what's going on. So the Greek word there is skene, which um, could be translated tabernacle, three tabernacles. What's a tabernacle? It is a mobile temple that's used to house the glory of God. So for instance, the tabernacle is where Israel worshiped God prior to the temple, right? David Solomon's temple being constructed. So what you have here is Peter suggesting that three temples be constructed. So Peter is ascribing to Moses and Elijah a kind of divine character. And of course, God responds out of the clouds about Jesus. And he says, no, 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 no. This is my son. Listen to him. Like he's exclusive, you see. Him alone. There are no others. Now, Christianity, right, has always taught that there is only one God. 
And the affirmation is not simply that there are other gods, but, but Jesus is just the best. That's not what we're saying. The Christian affirmation is that other gods don't even exist. Like Isaiah 44 says it like this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Like there's, no, there's not even other gods. So other religious beliefs are not ultimately founded in reality. Now listen, this does not mean uh, that other religions cannot say wise things or have beautiful, compelling cultures. They do. But ultimately, there is not a real God or gods behind the religious system. Now, I know this sounds impossibly hard to accept for a person who's been reared in Denver, right? Which is like 10% of you. <laughs> but, but if this doesn't sound hard to you, it most certainly sounds hard to your neighbors. There is a very strong cultural impulse to label what I just said, that sort of affirmation, as intolerant and worse, dangerous. And in some cases, when you know, people claim to have exclusive truth, they use it to manipulate and oppress people. And that observation is not true. Like, that, that is actually true. People claiming to have the truth will hurt people. That is true. The, the critique is actually extremely important, and so we kind of need to think through it together. So Dr. Jules Martinez, he was a good friend of mine uh, in Puerto Rico. He taught at several universities, both in Latin America, well, in the United States, and actually he's presently in Canada, regent uh, teaching. Uh, and he uh, also would teach undergrad students as well. And um, he would always start his first day of class uh, asking his students to answer this question. Are all religions the same? Are they leading all people to the same destiny? Now, through our sort of the zeitgeist, that's how what philosophers would talk, but through the sort of mood in which we reside now, maybe our educational systems, we have nourished in ways that we don't even understand a deep skepticism towards anyone who insists that they know the truth, the capital T truth. Sometimes we call this intellectual agnosticism, but it's the notion that no one should insist that their view of God is superior in that all religions are equally valued, right? That are, are equally valid. That's like the presupposition for this kind of line of reasoning and this, this discomfort. Okay, are you following? Now, what's at stake here is the ability to make a comparative value statement between religions, which we absolutely have no cultural palette for because it feels like we're betraying a pluralism, right? We're betraying pluralism, and, and we don't want to do that. Now, this framework of argumentation, you should know, is actually not virtually never used in other arenas. So my friend, Dr. Martinez, he will quickly point out that no one alleges that the democracy as it's practiced in France, the socialism as it's practiced in Cuba, and the authoritarianism as it's practiced in, among ISIS are really all the same because they're all governments, Right? Yes, indeed, they are all governments, but it's not true that they are de facto the same. And so we should not employ that kind of logic with religions either. 
Now, keep following me here. So I want us to like be equipped and kind of think about this. While this feels exclusive, it should not alarm us. It just should make us careful. Here's why. In order to affirm that all religions are virtually the same, with the all, all leading to the same destiny, there are other premises that you have to agree with first. What are they? You have to agree first that there is either no God at all, like we're making God, God is just a social construct, there is no God, or the God who is there is actually just an impersonal force who doesn't care how you describe him. You either have to believe that there is no God for them all to be valid, or that the God who is there doesn't care about how you describe him. Now, if you believe in either of those presuppositions, then you are believing by faith in a very specific view of God. There is not a generic, all-inclusive view of God. Those are very doctrinal, specific perspective and theological commitments. Those are positions that are dogmatic and doctrinal in nature, just like the Christian doctrinal formation. You see, if you insist that that view of God, either one of those, is superior to the view of God as he's described by Christianity, if you insist on that in that uh, and, and, and if you insist on it in the name of pluralism, in the name of inclusiveness, then you are being hypocritical. You are doing the very thing that you said was forbidden for Christians to do. That is just as exclusive as any other view of God. You see, are y'all following this a little bit? Listen, everyone has a particular view of God or lack thereof. There's no view that can actually account for all gods or all religions. And the view that all religions are equally valued as a line of argumentation is as exclusive as other views because it's counting on God's character being a certain way, either that he doesn't exist or doesn't care what you call him. But you're describing God, you say. What's happened, I think, in our culture is that there's this new kind of intolerance. And we're killing pluralism, actually. If, if you say that you don't believe in that specific view of God, the cultural view of God, then in this pluralistic society, you are marginalized, considered anti-intellectual, maybe philosophically regressive. Because here's the thing. Exclusivity claims are everywhere. Everyone makes them. You're either a jerk or you're not a jerk, right? So truth claims can lead to abuse and exploitation, but they don't have to. So when you pay attention, it's really the character and who you are that matters. But everyone plays on the, flute, on, on the field of exclusivity. All right, sorry for taking too much time on this tangent. Here's why this is important. Land the plane, Garcia. Peter has this encounter with Jesus, and it changed him. He met the living God. His effort to build a tabernacle for others was explicitly prohibited. 
This was not a philosophical exercise for Peter. When he understood the exclusivity of Christ through that Jewish framework, his faith moved from his head and it turned into worship. At that moment, Christ became his personal savior, his Lord. Peter was not just being a religious person anymore who just wanted a general or a revolutionary. He is beginning to worship. And I want that for you. And I don't want us to live in this vague religious reality of in-between. Like I want you to surrender. Dads, I want you to surrender so that your children would see what it's like for you to surrender. Moms, I want this to ignite the knowledge that's in your head and turn it into like worship, you guys. I want you to worship him. If you don't, you'll never experience like the power of Christ doing something new in your life. This text is screaming out from these sacred pages saying, don't you dare, like, don't you dare let that happen. Like, don't move past this. All right, I have gone long. Let me use my final and third point as my conclusion. So we looked at the greatness and the exclusivity of Christ. Now let's look at the destiny of Christ. So the end, the last few verses of our passage can be very confusing. Let me see if I can't quickly explain it. So as Jesus had done so often, he said to his disciples not to tell anyone what they had seen. Like, zip it up for a little bit, Peter, right? And so they were asking among themselves, verse 10, like, what, what does it mean to rise from the dead? I know that sounds obvious to you guys, but they were asking, what does it mean? It's because this is very confusing for a Jew, because a Jew believed in one general resurrection at the end of time. But that for them, for Peter and Uh, and his guys to be around when Jesus rose from the dead, for them to be around when it happened, that's like mind-blowing. They don't, Jews don't have categories for that. That's why they're asking. So they continue this line of inquiry, verse 11. Well, what's up with Elijah? Why do the scribes say that he must come first? Now, Jesus responds to this questioning by talking about his death. He says, guess what, guys? Elijah did come already. Now, when Jesus says that, what he is referring to is John the Baptist. He did come. John the Baptist came, verse 13, and he says, and they did to him whatever they pleased. Let me interpret that for you. They put John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's what he means. And the arrival and fate of John the Baptist, ladies and gentlemen, is a glimpse of what would happen to Jesus. And so we must ask, like, why, why in the world is Jesus so hush-hush about this? Why is he always saying, like, don't talk about this? And, and then why in the world do religious people want to kill Jesus? Like, what's going on here? Why do they want to kill him? And well, listen, because the answer is going to kind of blow your mind. Religious people want to kill him. For the same reason that Peter wanted to build a tabernacle for Jesus. Follow me on this. The tabernacle is not just a place to house the glory of God. 
it was created to protect the people from the unadulterated holiness of God. See, the, the, the holiness of God is so pure that it purifies everything in its presence. The holiness of God would violently purify you and I if we were in his presence until nothing's left. The holiness of God's not great for us. And so if this is true, like how in the world can God and man dwell together without one incinerating the other? Like how? And the answer is Jesus Jesus is God. Jesus is fully divine and also fully human. And so his body is the tabernacle that now houses the glory of the Lord such that you can be in his presence and not be incinerated. Right? In Christ dwells the fullness of God. And the religious leaders absolutely understood this claim. They understood what they were, this affirmation, and it threatened them. So much so that they wanted to kill him. You see why I say that? That's why religious people want to kill him. Same reason why Peter wanted to put a tabernacle around him. It's threatening Jesus as God. So how about you? Everyone who meets Jesus for who he truly is either wants to kill him or worship him. But nobody who truly meets Jesus just stays a cultural, lukewarm follower. Not if you're really encountering the true one of this text. The great theologian N.T. Wright, he says it like this. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life, and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. The transfiguration of Christ is meant to be a transformation in you. Would you let the sacred text do business with you? Amen. Amen.